This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I spoke to European Space Agency astrobiologist and deep space exploration scientist Nicole Kaplan about the search for life beyond Earth and how the study of microorganisms will play a crucial part in the future of crewed spaceflight. Hello, my name is Nicole Kaplan. I'm a deep space exploration scientist at the European Space Agency based in Nordwijk in the Netherlands. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks very much for um, joining me in the podcast, Nicole. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. I mean, um, you're an, an astrobiologist, but I have to say uh, deep space exploration scientist is way cooler. That's has to be one of the coolest job titles that I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. It, so- it sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? Um, but what it essentially is, is exploration science um, that goes beyond low Earth orbit. So that's where the deep space part comes in. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned astrobiology. Um, a lot of people don't actually know what astrobiology actually is. They think it's anything to do with biology and space, but it's actually quite specific. Astrobiology is um, concerned with three main topics. That's the origins of life and where we came from, the limits of life and what it can withstand, and then the really exciting one, uh, which is the possibility that there could be life elsewhere. Yeah, and, uh, you know, given that sort of uh, deep space space exploration um, aspect of your, your job title, Presumably that means, and, and working for the European Space Agency, presumably that means you approach astrobiology from the sort of the, the space flight angle? Yes, that's correct. So uh, in terms of the deep space side of astrobiology, uh, what astrobiologists have traditionally done in European science is fly experiments 
uh, in low Earth orbit to see how um, some extremophiles, and I can I can tell you a bit more about about what an extremophile is in a moment, um, but how uh, these uh, these samples respond to the spaceflight environment um, just in low Earth orbit. So that could be uh, the vast uh, temperature fluctuations, so going from very, very hot when things are directly in the sun to extreme cold temperatures, um, intense radiation environment, including uh, galactic cosmic rays, um, and then, of course, microgravity and how life is responding to that. And then when we talk about doing astrobiology in deep space, well, for ESA, that means going a little bit beyond low Earth orbit. So uh, outside of the Earth's uh, magnetic, um, magnetic field. So we get a lot of protection from all of the harsh uh, radiation in space from this protective layer. Uh, and that's where the uh, International Space Station sits within. So anything that we are doing on the International Space Station by default is uh, protected by, by this lovely layer. But astrobiologists are really concerned with looking at what types of life could exist beyond low Earth orbit and, and outside of this layer. And one of the ways that we can do that is by going to lunar orbit. Astrobiologists and, and, and um, in sort of exoplanet science, people always talk about life as we know it, finding life as we know it. And, and that sort of leads to people get excited when when you find an exoplanet that you know is in the you know the, the, the so-called Goldilocks zone, water can pool in the surface because that's supposedly conducive to life as we know it existing. But as your your sort of um, uh, exploration and study shows, there are lots of uh, organisms on Earth that that don't even appear to exist under conditions that are conducive to life as we know it. Do you know what I mean? So you know the, the, those uh, so-called extremophiles. Um, does that give, give you hope that we will find life on less seemingly habitable um, exoplanets or, or, or other bodies of the solar system, for example? Personally, I think it's entirely plausible to think that there is life out there in the cosmos. But I also think that there is the possibility that that may not be the case. Um, but I'm in the business of finding that out. So uh, that's uh, that's something that excites me. And I think we should continue looking until we uh, see evidence uh, not to look. So um, you mentioned extremophiles. Now, extremophiles uh, are classed as organisms that you find uh, that live beyond the realms of what is classed as uh, habitable uh, for, for you and I. For example, um, if you went to put, if you if you put us in a room uh, and blasted us with a really really high dose of radiation, well, we'd get poorly very quickly. Uh, but there are certain organisms um, and also plants, plants and and bacteria uh, that can withstand high high doses of radiation way beyond what we can withstand and and also um your pets at home uh, can withstand so so and this this is the type of life not you and i uh that we think could be out there do you sort of um hold out much hope for um finding life of any kind in our in our solar system i'm, I'm sort of specifically thinking of future missions to the you know the icy moons around jupiter yes so um that's one of the places that astrobiologists want to focus on, because where you find water, 
you therefore could infer that life could exist. Water is the, the number one requirement for life as we know it. But in order to do that, you need to then test out what could actually be surviving in those conditions. So, for example, we have an experiment uh, in the current planning uh, called Ice Cold, and this specifically focuses on um, simulating uh, the icy moon environment outside of the ISS. So it's an external payload, and what it will do is place biological samples outside in these simulated conditions. Now, if things can survive this, then that implies that going to the icy moons, sending probes there, looking for more examples of life uh, is, is, a, is a good line of inquiry. So we should go and do that. <laughs> I, I mean, um, you sort of also think of the Cassini mission, which was, you know, studying um, the, well, part of its mission was to study the possibility of life existing in the, the subsurface ocean around in, uh, the icy moon Enceladus. Um, I mean, as, as far as I know, no, no signs of life were were found. But um, do you think, for example, it's worth sending a, a similar mission back to the Saturnian system for a sort of follow up, just just to make sure? I always think it's worth uh, doing things more than once, and I think that speaks for all scientists as technology uh, develops and it's developing at quite a rapid pace. Instruments are becoming smarter and smaller. And, uh, and we're sending more and more of these types of uh, instruments to space all of the time. So as this uh, technology progresses, then we may find life way beyond our own planet using more sensitive instruments. So I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a good and exciting thing to, to be part of. <laughs> One of the things I, I always love um, whenever I get the chance to speak to an astrobiologist, uh, I always love asking them about uh, the, the theory of panspermia because it really um, it really intrigues me that that might be a possibility. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an overview of, of what that is and, and sort of how how it might work and, and and how likely it is. Sure. So panspermia theory, um, in simple terms, is the theory that life could have been imported here from somewhere else in the cosmos, um, be it on a comet or um, other another vessel. Um, the idea is that it could have seeded life here on Earth um, or some types of life here on Earth. So um, one, of, one of the ways we think that could have happened, possibly one of the theories, is that, um, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I've seen some really good illustrations where you've got um, little bacteria that are just hanging on to hanging on to a rock, flying through space, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and 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 that's kind of a very um, interesting and, and comical way of looking at it. But it's not entirely unfounded. But what's probably more likely is that something um, was was buried beneath a layer on one of these um, yes comets or. or or other other um, other body uh, that protected it from not only the harsh space environment but also uh, reentry and the, the blistering temperatures that that could have or that that would have um, been subjected to. So we can imagine that perhaps once upon a time there were some uh, bacteria or archaea buried into into the surface of the comet. Um, with a few layers protecting it, kind of like a bit of a um, 
<laughs> bit of spacesuit, uh, and and then it then it peppered the earth. Is there a possibility that we human beings might have, you know, that uh, human life might have arisen that way? It is one of the theories that life didn't spontaneously begin on Earth, that it began somewhere else and was therefore imported. And there's, you know, there's kind of no proof of that. Um, but we can test out these extremophiles and see if that is a plausible theory indeed. It's incredible to, to think that maybe like uh, around the galaxy, that that's just happening everywhere, that life is just being transported around, around the galaxy, isn't it? Yeah, so you can think too deeply about it and then it can be a little overwhelming if you think, oh gosh, there's all of this life exploding around around the galaxy or or, or beyond, who knows, and uh, and somehow it and somehow it travelled here. Uh, but it, but it's uh, it's exciting. It certainly is. Um, it's it's definitely worth worth talking about some of the uh, projects that you're involved in because. Some I, I was I've been reading up on you know some some of the projects that you're involved in and they're just absolutely mind blowing. I mean the one the one that really got me um, excited and interested was uh, BioRock. Could you tell us a bit about that? So yes, BioRock is fantastic. Um, it's I describe it as the world's first miniaturized biomining facility to go to space. Now what BioRock did was test, uh, test samples of bacteria that are known to, um, to, to be used in biomining pro- processes, which is an already established process on Earth. We, uh, we can extract precious metals and materials from Earth, such as copper or gold, um, from, from rock, uh, using these uh, large-scale industrial processes with bacteria to extract those uh, materials. But there's this thought that well, we could do this off Earth because if there's this vision and there is this vision of colonizing um, the moon or Mars or beyond, uh, then not only is it very um, economically uh, costly to to be taking materials uh, with us, um, but also environmentally, we don't want to be depleting our precious planet of uh, finite materials and resources um, already. So, uh, so so there is this vision to um, carry out these practices on the moon or Mars. Now, the way that we can do that, the way that we can test to see if that's, uh, if that's really worth doing is by exposing these bacterial species that are commonly used in these processes on Earth. And if they perform the same or better than they do on Earth, then why couldn't we use them to uh, to carry out uh, biomining um, off planet? And the res- results so far are showing some really promising things. These bacteria don't seem to be um, struggling with the microgravity, um, and we already know that some of these bacterial species that have specifically been chosen um, are resistant already to radiation. So then you have this beautiful combination of a very resistant bacterial species that can also survive these space conditions in microgravity. And there you go. You might be able to uh, to, to mine off the planet someday with them. So what would they actually be able to do? How would it actually benefit the uh, crewed mission uh, on the moon? Is, is, is it sort of like building materials or...? So it would be things used within building materials, but also um, 
other other uses for precious metals. We're, we're focusing specifically on the metals. There is um, also great work going on uh, with with building materials. Uh, use actually using uh, the surface of the moon, lunar regolith, uh, to, to to construct like construct bricks, for example, using uh, additive manufacturing, three D printing. Um, but for 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 taking the precious metals and, and making wiring and cabling and, and all of that sort of thing and, and the structure themselves and the metals uh then that that's that's the thought that we could use these metals for, for incorporating them into construction it, it it also i mean i could be wrong but but it also sounds like it it would be less sort of destructive and invasive than than diggers you know digging chunks out of the lunar surface is that the case or am i just being <laughs> optimistic i'm not sure if it's less invasive uh, in terms of it, like extraction is extraction, whichever way you do it, you're going to be taking something away. But taking crews to the moon and and working in that lunar gravity environment, well, I'm sure you've seen the videos from the Apollo missions and astronauts falling over and how tricky it can actually be um, working and adapting to work in that environment. So if we can just imagine some large scale vats um, that are on the lunar surface that are placed there, and then uh, regolith or basalt is added to these fats and you just have bacteria in there in a closed system working away and then extracting the material um, through through an outlet. It could be a, a lot more of a, well, it's just a more logical way of doing things than, than having to rely on uh, clumsy astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> I do love all, all the all the really cool experiments that go on in the ISS. I mean, I, I think... Um, Maybe, maybe not. Not everyone sort of um, is is aware of just how much sort of you know scientific research goes on. Has the ISS been of of real benefit to your to your own personal career and field? And also, would you ever love to go up to the to the ISS yourself and and actually do 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 your own research in uh, zero gravity? This is a brilliant question. The ISS has been a continual human presence in space for just over 20 years now and for European science that's been a key part of of our research um without the ISS being there I wouldn't be working on the projects that I'm working on so of course I'm going to say that the ISS is absolutely crucial to what I do um and would I go there myself in a heartbeat I, I I think yeah that would be an amazing opportunity and uh and not only do I then get to uh, to plan the experiments, I'd actually go and get to carry them out myself. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's one of the things I think. Like, um, it it isn't isn't it sort of the case that scientists like yourself on the ground have to con- convey the procedure to the astronauts, and then they have to do it. Whereas if you were there, you could just you could just do it yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it might sound a little bit control freak for me to say it that way. Um, but part of my job um, is not only uh, communicating the scientific requirements to the engineering teams to make sure that the hardware that gets developed is um, will fulfil the scientific requirements, but also translating those requirements into operational speak so that our operational teams can, um, can communicate with the astronauts and make it absolutely crystal clear what needs to be done because well a lot of the time you only kind of get one shot you load an experiment on a rocket it goes to the ISS it gets uh, offloaded and um, and there you have it it needs to be installed and carried out and there's not much room for error in a lot of the cases life is a highway 
And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Um, another experiment that I was going to uh, hoping you would uh, tell us about was the uh, biofilms um, experiment. That, that's another really, really interesting one. So I already mentioned how useful bacteria can be. Um, I'm very pro-bacteria for biomining, but uh, they can also be a hindrance. Uh, I've, I'm not sure if you've seen what the inside of the ISS looks like at the moment. I mentioned that it's been a continual um, source of human presence in space for the past 20 years, well, there's no cleaning crews that go around an International Space Station. And so there is an issue now that there is some contamination signs showing on some of the walls. So what Biofilms seeks to do is to work out what new materials could be used on future spacecraft to enhance the level of cleanliness, to improve hygiene, in areas where you're not going to be able to clean often. And so one of the ways that we can do that is by taking metals that have known antimicrobial properties on Earth, for example, copper, um, and exposing them, uh, well, having bacteria uh, cultured on the surfaces in the space environment to see if being in space actually makes a difference or not. Do they still retain these antimicrobial properties? Or do we need to apply some special surface treatments to them? Do we need to laser etch them? Is there something that the bacteria um, are are doing uh, in in space, which means that they adhere uh, well or or less well to the surfaces um, in microgravity? And then we can take those results and then we can start building them into smarter surfaces for spaceflight. And one of the great things about doing that is that we're also, at the same time, developing these technologies that can be used on Earth. So they have immediate Earth benefits. So in areas that you need enhanced hygiene, I mean, look at us right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Cleanliness has never been more important. So if we can incorporate these smarter services into places that people really need it, then that's only a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, it also sounds like one of those um, ISS experiments that's sort of looking beyond the life of the ISS and, you know, to sort of uh, beyond Earth orbit and even maybe potentially to Mars, you know, how, how are humans and the equipment going to survive, like, you know, lo- longer journeys where, where you know, potential rescue is a, lot, is a lot farther away? It's an important thing to consider if you're going to be on longer um, duration spaceflight missions, that you're going to need this uh, hygienic environment 
Um, and so when developing future spacecraft, if we can incorporate these technologies and therefore uh, improve the hygiene of, of new um, living quarters for astronauts, uh, food preparation areas, um, toilet areas, then, uh, then we can start to see a more sustainable uh, presence out in space and just just a nicer environment in general. I suppose, yeah, that that also brings us um, nicely onto um, yet another experiment that you're involved in, which is the uh, Rotor for B experiment, because that, that, that sort of speaks to long-duration spaceflight as well, doesn't it? So Rotor for B uh, looks at rotifers. Now, not everybody knows what rotifers are. Tardigrades are similar to rotifers, and you may have heard of tardigrades or water bears, um, but found in exactly the same environments that tardigrades are found in, are rotifers. Now, these are these small um, swimming or crawling, depending on the species, microorganisms that are also incredibly uh, radio resistant. And what uh, the Rotifer B project is looking to do is use rotifers as a model for DNA damage and repair in space. Rotifers have this amazing capability to repair their own DNA you can subject them to massive doses of radiation uh, through proton beams or, or X-rays, uh, and then they can just repair themselves. So near-lethal doses almost kill them, and then they can repair themselves. So we want to see if there's a difference between how they do this on Earth and how they do this in space to see if there's a difference in how DNA actually repairs itself in space, and then we can extrapolate that data and, uh, and do some omics research, and also see if it therefore can then be applied to humans. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's one of the things that I, I always um, wonder when 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 we talk about them um, studying extremophiles in space and how they survive is how you would actually apply what you've learned to humans. Um, you know, because it's not as if well, I mean. I would imagine it's not as if we can easily easily replicate what 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 the, what's what's sort of going on and you know genetically in these extremophiles and in how they adapt and survive in space. No, but and at the same time we can't um, take yeah take you and I as I've, I've explained previously can't subject an astronaut to uh, some huge doses of radiation and then and then kind of have a look at their DNA and see how that's repairing. No, they would. That's like they would die. <laughs> so, um, so by doing so, by doing that with the extremophiles, we can then learn what the mechanisms are, and then we can see: okay, do humans possess these uh, similar mechanisms? Is there a way of engineering these mechanisms, perhaps at some point in the future, to humans? Could could we could we repair our DNA at some point? Um, so, so there's all of these open questions, but you have to start small, and uh, extremophiles are the way to go. I often wonder with with someone like yourself who who has uh, studied extremophiles so much. Um, do do you ever sort of like almost despair at just sort of how how weak and needy humans are? <laughs> We're really not well put together when uh, when compared to extremophiles, are we? Um, uh, do I despair? Um, no, I think there are some great qualities to being human, but I do get a little bit jealous of uh, of the extremophiles uh, that can sometimes survive open space without a spacesuit. But if uh, if we went to space without a spacesuit, well, we've had it. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, 
tardigrades, they they can go through all sorts of can can they sort of like um, dry out and, and like survive without water and and, and, all, and all sorts of things like that. Yes, and in the exact same way, rotifers can also um, dry out. So we can desiccate samples of tardigrades and rotifers and dry them down so they are almost completely dry. It's something like 99.8% dry matter. So just the tiniest, tiniest bit of um, moisture in there. Uh, and then when they're in this state, we can then do all sorts of things. We can put them in uh, in very you know, high temperatures, we can freeze them right down, um, we can we can irradiate them, we can put them in, in acid. Uh, and then once you take them out of that environment and you revive them by just rehydrating them, uh, then they uh, they seem to carry on uh, as normal. They are really, uh, really tough, tough things. But one of the common misconceptions with these particular extremophiles is that they can just survive anything and they don't have to go through that desiccation uh, process. Um, and that's completely false. If you plucked a tardigrade or rotifer out of your garden pond and you, and you put it in um, in a you know in some boiling water, it, it would die because it just it just can't go through those shifts without going through that um that that desiccated process. Ah, right. Yeah, that, that's cool. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely that's definitely worth clearing up. Yeah, because because you, you do have this sort of impression of tardigrades. Yeah, that they can just survive anything. You know. <laughs> well, and that's that's what caused um, a lot of concern. I don't know if you recall a few years ago there was uh, there was a mission, um, the the uh, Barrier Sheep mission that crash landed on the lunar surface, um, and that was uh, containing a payload of tardigrades. Um, and this caught the imagination of the media around the world that <laughs> uh, there's these tardigrades that have crash landed on the moon. And this is of uh, utmost concern because they survive anything and they're going to grow and replicate. And then uh, maybe one day they'll take over the world. Well, this, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the case because the tardigrades that were sent, again, are in this dry, desiccated state and they can only be... Uh, woken up with uh, with the rehydration and well, there's no liquid water hanging about on the surface of the moon um, and these samples were also encased in multiple layers of metal and resin um, and if by some some chance that the um, all of these layers burst open when the lander uh, crashed and, uh, and and some water found itself onto these samples by some incredibly low chance i don't know um, a comet hit the moon an icy comet and then hydrated hydrated all of these samples uh they wouldn't last long because the uh the radiation is uh is what gets them uh right okay <laughs> and also there's no food for them yeah absolutely they'd either get irradiated and die or they'd starve to death so it's, it's not, not a nice fate for them just um Talking about the moon actually actually brings me on to the next thing I want to ask you about, which is because um, you you sort of mentioned previously about you know the uh, limit of the the ISS being in in Earth orbit and you know the sort of necessity scientifically speaking to go beyond. Because I understand that one one of the future projects that you're involved in is the uh, lunar gateway. I mean, it'd be really interesting to get an, an astrobiologist's perspective on the, on the on the lunar gateway and, and the possibilities that that's going to open up for scientific research. Yes, so um, the lunar gateway. Um, will be a uh, another spacecraft uh, similar to the ISS, uh, but much smaller. 
and it will be placed in lunar orbit. Now, what's really interesting about the particular orbit that was chosen for this spacecraft is that it's a near rectilinear halo orbit. Um, and what that means is it spends some of its time outside of the Earth's uh, magnetic layer. So you will have this deep space environment where you can expose astrological samples without this protection. For the very first time, you can really expose these samples to deep space. So what sort of um, possibilities does that open up then? And like, are you, are you personally sort of pl planning experiments that are going to take advantage of that, of, of that uh, aspect of the mission? So at the moment, it's very much in the planning phase um, and we're having a look at utilisation um, for the first 15 years at least. And this spans across many, many disciplines, not just astrology, um, but also human research, um, technology, um, heliophysics, looking at uh, lunar dust as well. So there's all of these, um, all of these research themes and topics, but, it, but for the astrobiology community, they're particularly concerned um, with finding out kind of the next stage of research, going that one phase deeper beyond uh, low Earth orbit studies. I mean, low Earth orbit studies are very important, of course. We learn a lot from them. We can expose samples to the radiation and the space vacuum, all of the temperature fluctuations, and of course, microgravity. But you're still within that protective layer. And another thing that we can avoid, which we've had issues with in the past on ISS, ISIS is very busy. There's lots of visiting vehicles and visiting vehicles off gas. And so what we've had in the past when we have these exposure um, experiments, for example, EXPOSE, that's the name of the, the previous um, generation of exposure experiments external to the ISS, is you had contamination on the transparent windows where you would have samples sitting behind this window to get the exposure to solar radiation. But then all of a sudden you've got this um, deposition um, you know, build up from, from the off-gassing of the visiting vehicles and therefore not providing a, a clear, um, a, a clear uh, experiment environment for, for these samples to get uh, exposed to. So the gateway will be new and it will have far less contamination and we can be really smart and we can take those lessons learned from ISS and really think about where we're going to place these experiments uh, in terms of placing them further away from the visiting vehicles so that we don't encounter those issues again. Uh, as we're recording, um, it, it's sort of approaching uh, New Year and, uh, you know, uh, 2022 is approaching. Um, so I, I was just going to sort of uh, finish off by, first of all, asking you, I mean, how has the how has the past year been? Has has, has the pandemic affected your uh, work very much? So time's a little bit of a blur, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes. So it's been really interesting working in space research during a pandemic. In normal times, we would have um, had experiment testing going on prior to launches. We would have had dress uh, like dress rehearsals, like dry runs of experiments, experiment sequence tests, where we we would carry out a full uh, yeah, a full dress rehearsal of experiments as they would be performed in space in a dedicated test center, and everyone would be there together 
Um, but of course, with, with all of the lockdowns, we haven't been able to do that. So um, we've had to uh, adapt like uh, like the rest of the world has and and we've done we've done a pretty good job of that and I've uh, I, ha- I hadn't previously ever had a, a zoom call um with a load of uh, a load of sample containers looking at me on on a <laughs> on a flow bench in a lab but that it happened we managed to to carry out these tests remotely um uh, with uh you know with with much scaled down uh, <laughs> scaled down staffing and uh and and it was it was remarkable to to see these tests being carried out just over webcam yeah i mean you, science has to go on doesn't it <laughs> Absolutely. If science doesn't go on, we won't go on. Absolutely, yeah. What about uh, 2022? Do, do you sort of, I, I sort of find once the 1st of January hits, I sort of get this sense of it being a fresh start. Do you, do, do you get that? Are, are, are you looking forward to 2022 and, and bringing like a, 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 new, a new year of, of prospects? I am looking forward to 2022. Um but in terms of space research, I don't think there's ever such thing as a fresh start. Um, there's always this continual building upon heritage and, and lessons learned of previous experiments and looking to the next thing. Um, it's science is the process of building on what we already know to therefore go forward and answer the questions to well, what we don't know. Uh, so the next generation of experiments are coming up. Um, so they are still in the planning. Uh, things have taken longer than anticipated, and some of that's down to the pandemic. Um, but we have we have some really ex- exciting experiments planned uh, for for low Earth orbit on the International Space Station. We have the next generation of biofilms going up now. Biofilms, uh, the experiment I spoke about a few moments ago. Um, was actually uh, distributed over three flights. The first flight has already gone, um, and the second one is coming up, I believe, February or March. Um, and the reason for doing that is to produce the good science. We need a large amount of replicates. Uh, anybody in a lab will tell you that the more data you have, uh, the better. So, uh, so we'll have the second flight of biofilms coming up, um, and that will test even more of these uh, different different surfaces, so copper, brass, and stainless steel uh, in the space environment to see uh, to see how how the bacteria fares uh, on those. And then, in addition to that, we are still planning um, the next generation of uh, external exposure experiments. I mentioned expose earlier. That was the first generation. Now, the second generation will be uh, the new exobiology facility. That will go on a platform uh, called Bartolomeo on the outside of the Columbus module of the ISS. And that is, again, a series of biological exposure experiments. But for the very first time, we will have in situ measurement capabilities, which means that scientists don't have to depend on getting their samples back from space before they do their analyses. No, they can do it in almost near real time with uh, with data downloads. So uh, that's really exciting. Yeah, I love hearing about the, the sort of prospect for future research and missions. It's, it's, it's always really exciting and it's always really um, encouraging to to just hear about um, all the, the future um, prospects for, for scientific research, especially in the in the space arena. Um, so I, uh, yeah, Wish you all the best with that for, for 2022 and uh, 
just want to say th- thanks again for coming on the podcast. I'm sure maybe we'll speak speak again next year when some of these uh, when some of these um, experiments are, are are properly underway. Yes, thank you for having me, and uh, happy new year. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.